0: All right, in the quarter hour we have left, I think I'm going to have to make a decision to defer our discussion on what evil developer Phil Angelides is up to, and uh, make reference instead to an interesting piece in the Sacramento News and Review cover story, in fact, about the war on journalism, discussing the mysterious death of death of Michael Hastings, which we've talked about on this program. He had a very mysterious fatal car crash in Los Angeles, which has led us to speculate on. Well, whether someone can hack into a car and uh, take remote control over its electronics. Apparently, it can be done. We're not saying it was done in this case, but it raises interesting questions. Anyway, in the Sacramento News and Review, you may want to check out the piece, The War on Journalism. First of all, the um, discussion of what happened to Mr. Hastings by Gene Maddowse, but also the sidebar titled War on Journalism by Cosmo Garvin. Cosmo starts off quoting Michael Hastings, who said uh, on a cable news show, The Young Turks, some time back The Obama administration has clearly declared war on the press. It's declared war on investigative journalists and on our sources. Cosmo does note that between the passage of the U.S. Espionage Act in 1917 and the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2009, The Espionage Act had been used three times to prosecute those accused of leaking classified information to the media. Since Obama took office, his administration has invoked the Espionage Act seven times to prosecute sources who gave classified information to journalists. Cosmo noted that in this month's Harper's Magazine, local writer William Volman recounted the uncovering of his own FBI file. Turns out the uh, organization had spied on him extensively and at one point even considered him as a Unabomber suspect. I do highly uh, recommend that you read this piece in Harper's. The same issue with the article against Algebra 2 we'll get to in a minute. But no, bravo to the news and review. Uh, Also bravo to Cosmo for noting that in this settlement that they're trying to come up with on labor for this new arena, all this talk about 4,000 local jobs, uh, well, maybe not. Apparently the unions are going to bring in some people from elsewhere. So, um... Local workers may not be um, the only beneficiaries. In fact, something like 1,400 jobs may come from outside the area. Gene, I'd hate to accuse these arena supporters of being misleading. And we would note that the editorial board of the News Review, like us here at Radio Parallax, thinks that an arena vote is still something that should go down. Perhaps on next week's show we can bring in somebody representing Sacramento taxpayers opposed to pork to hear from them. I think we should, because it seems to us that the pro arena people seem to have no problem getting their message out. And uh, I also want to give an attaboy the news and review for the piece also by Nick Miller, a little editor's note about this, uh, this attempt to get us involved in an idiotic war in Syria. Said Nick, the United States should not attack Syria. Someone, please explain what a bombing and cruise missile assault will accomplish. An attack will fuel already simmering regional sectarian conflicts in neighboring Middle Eastern countries, and it will uphold, no, escalate this tragic proxy war within Syria, which has already gone on too long. As an American journalist, I'm frustrated by this country's traditional media and its kowtowing to war, including the Sacramento Bee's editorial board, which last Friday beat the drum in favor of a military attack, arguing that Obama's reputation and this country's standing in the world will, quote, suffer, unquote, if we don't drop bombs and lob missiles. Noted Nick, first the president's reputation and the nation's standing are two different things, but both will suffer if we do attack. Have we learned nothing from the past dozen years of war in the Middle East? What's wrong with you, my America? And I hope you caught uh, Bashir Assad talking to Charlie Rose on his program. He may not be such a great guy, but he did make some intelligent points about uh, how an expansion of a war in Syria may not be such a good idea for anybody. Now, it's true he may be the person that uh, would least benefit from it, but um, he's not wrong. He's so not wrong that even right-wing goofball commentator Charles Krauthammer <laughs> comes in an agreement with, uh, well, with a lot of people, including us. When he wrote, If President Obama merely wants to send a message to Syria's murderous dictator he should text him. He might incur a roaming charge, but it's still cheaper than a three-day, highly telegraphed, perfectly useless demonstration strike. Well, there you have it. Charles Krauthammer, like a stopped clock, (laughs) is sometimes right. All right, let's take a few minutes and talk about why uh, uh, math, as it's currently taught in this country, should probably be a felony. Of course, that's Radio Parallax's opinion. But an opinion that's not terribly far off from that comes from the piece, Wrong Answer, The Case Against Algebra 2 by Nicholas Baker in the current edition of Harper's, which I want to take a couple minutes worth of quotes out of. Said Baker, imagine for a moment you're a high school student halfway through a required Algebra 2 class. It's Monday, and this week it seems you're moving into something called rational functions. Last week was a strenuous force march through logarithms. You're sleepy, bored, and discouraged. The teacher is hardworking, jokey, smart, exhausted. She knows most of the kids in her class don't want to be there. In fact, the author did quote a number of, uh, of commentaries from the web on, on, from students about algebra. Said one, Algebra needs to die. I've been on honor roll since fourth grade, and I got my first C in algebra. Now I have an F with grades about to close, and I don't get it. I just want to cry. Nothing makes sense. Where is this going to get me in life? Noted Baker, if you look down at your textbook, which is published by Pearson, it's very new and it's very heavy, and it's called Algebra II Common Core. The textbook's cover is black, with a nice illustration of a looming robotic gecko. The gecko robot has green compound eyes and is held together with shiny chrome screws. It has a gold jaw and splayed gold toenails. Perhaps you like the idea of robotic geckos. You might expect reasonably that there would be something about the mathematics either of geckos or robots, at least, somewhere in the book. But there isn't. There is, however, at the beginning of Chapter 8, Rational Functions, an interesting high-speed photograph of a basilic lizard, of a basilic lizard, also known as a Jesus Christ lizard, that is dashing on tiptoe across the surface of a body of water. A facing caption says, Rational Functions help explain how surface tension allows some animals to tread across a pond surface. How can you graph rational functions and solve rational equations? You will learn how in this chapter. But you discover, said Baker, that the lizard image is just a bait and switch. There's nothing about surface tension or walking on water in Chapter 8, and indeed the caption would puzzle an expert on reptilian locomotion, since basilic liz- lizards don't actually rely on surface tension to run on water. They rely on the momentary inertia of the bolus of water beneath its fleet long-toed feet. If basilic lizards had to rely instead on equations of surface tension, they'd sink immediately, as do many algebra students. So, said Baker, no lizards, no geckos, no robots. Here's what you actually learn about rational functions in chapter 8. A rational function is a function that you can write in the form f of x equals p of x over q of x, where p of x and q of x are polynomial functions. The domain of f of x is all real numbers, except those for which q of x equals 0. You know, and there are still some people out there that claim this isn't useful in real life. Who are these blockheads? Baker goes on, not only that, but a rational function can be continuous or discontinuous, and a continuous rational function is one that if you graph it, quote, has no jumps, breaks, or holes in it. He goes on to note that Algebra Two Common Core is a typical old-fashioned algebra textbook. It's a highly efficient engine for the creation of math rage, a dead scrap heap of repellent terminology, a collection of spiky, decontextualized, multi-step, mathematical, black-box techniques that you must practice over and over and get by heart in order to be ready to do something interesting later on if the time comes. He goes on to talk about a lot of theoreticians about the wonder of math and yada yada and concludes that the vast majority of the human race and the vast majority of the college-educated human race never needs any mathematics beyond arithmetic to survive successfully. Anyway, I recommend you read the entire piece for yourself, dear listener. And I would just editorialize for myself that algebra, when you understand what its uses are. If a science teacher gets around explaining that to you, because a math teacher generally won't, well, it's pretty cool stuff. But the fact is, most people don't need it. Most people don't know how to use it, even though they spent all that time in the classroom. So you need to think about yanking algebra out of our curriculum. Apparently, one of this emphasis in math crept into our curriculum back at the, uh, the turn of the 20th century when education laws changed across the country, which um, insisted that kids stay in school till 16 instead of age 14. All of a sudden, teachers had a lot of extra time to do some teaching. So what did they decide to fill it up with? Well, the things that colleges required. Latin grammar, English grammar and composition, algebra, geometry, trigonometry. The result of all this, by the way, especially in math class, was that the failure rates soared. Baker notes it was clear to many educators there was a serious problem with this. Compulsory schooling for all wouldn't work if algebra was part of the required curriculum. Anyway, read the piece. We'll talk about this again. And and please save your hate letters. I know that a lot of you people out there really strongly disagree with me on this one, but um, while it's true that I have a radio show and generally you don't, we will read your letters if you send them in. Just just don't go overboard, okay? All right, we got about, uh, I don't know, five minutes left. Let's Let's do a couple of obituaries. Starting with one I'm meaning to get to for actor Michael Ansara. Ansara is perhaps best known for being one of seven actors to play the same character, which was that of Klingon Commander Kang, on three different Star Trek television series. The original series, the Deep Space Nine, and the Voyager series. What sort of shocks me, about the late Michael Ansar is that I remember very, very well from childhood. The role I remember him for, which was that of Cochise in the TV program Broken Arrow. And I know I'm getting old when I realize that I can remember this show pretty darn well. But it started in 1956 and ran for two or three years. So I was watching this program before I was in kindergarten. But it was pretty popular back then. Michael Ansara became a household name in America. And as a curious sidelight, while he was making the series, uh, 20th Century Fox Publicity Department arranged a date between him and actress Barbara Eden. Yes, later better known as Jeannie in I Dream of Jeannie. And at this juncture, I think I want to quote uh, from someone else who had something to say about the passing of Michael Ansara. That would be CBS News anchor Bob Schieffer.
1: The actor who specialized in playing American Indians and aliens died last week at age 91. He'll be remembered by many for his Star Trek role as Kang, the evil Klingon leader. But I'll remember him for his earlier role as the Apache Indian chief Cochise. And because he and his then-wife Barbara Eden who would go on to play the title role in I Dream of Jeannie, were the first celebrities I ever interviewed. It was 1957, and they came to Fort Worth because he was guest starring at the rodeo. I was a 20-year-old college student working nights at a little radio station, and was sent out to interview them. It was not easy. Tape recorders were suitcase-sized in those days. I had never interviewed a movie star, and their hotel near the rodeo arena had no elevator. Once I wrestled the tape recorder up to their room, I was out of breath, had somehow lost the questions I planned to ask, and managed to say to her at one point, in your show you basically play a dumb blonde, right? To which she responded, basically. Even so, they treated me with patience and good humor. A lot has changed in journalism since then. Recorders are much smaller. I hope I've learned to ask better questions. I'm sure they soon forgot the episode, and I never saw them again. But I never forgot how kind they were to a kid who had no idea what he was doing. When you're the kid, you never forget those things.
0: And finally, David Frost passed away recently. And the thing that seems to make everybody's uh, obituary notice was that uh, he interviewed Richard Nixon after Watergate. They even made a movie about this. And as part of the hype, they made a big deal out of the fact that uh, Frost got Nixon to admit that he let the American public down, which I don't think is the proper epitaph for for David Frost. I think it is more interesting to note that Frost at one point had uh, television programs in both Britain and America, and he's credited with uh, changing the nature of TV interviews. Wrote one obituary, Unctuous deference was out. Aggression and skepticism were in. Frost was soon being courted by U.S. networks, and he did fill in twice for Johnny Carson in 1968. In 69, he was, in fact, given his show here in America, and for several years he was jetting back and forth between the two countries as he interviewed people like Timothy Leary, Billy Graham, and Raquel Welch. But personally, what, what strikes me about David Frost uh, is that he was the host of a TV program called That Was the Week That Was. This was a program uh, which was a precursor to The Daily Show, to Saturday Night Live, to a lot of things. He was hired in 1962 as the host of this news lampooning show, and in 63 he brought that program here to the U.S., which I can remember. Note of the obituaries, it paved the way for the hard-edged topical comedy of later shows like the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and as we said, The Daily Show. I was horrified to note in researching this program sometime back that apparently almost all copies of it have disappeared. I know for sure a lot of people back in that era wanted to make this show go away. I know a lot of times it was preempted in the ramp up to um, the 1964 um, presidential election, presumably by forces um, favorable to Senator Goldwater, who kept buying airtime for specials uh, promoting Barry Goldwater. That kept uh, preempting. That was the week that was. We're out of time, and it's a shame, because that's a program I'd like to say more about. Maybe might be worth having a guest come on to talk about it uh, and, and all the ground that it broke back in the early 60s. But unfortunately, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Jeff Hudson, who manages to do it all. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.